Holy God, show us the ways of love. Guide us in your truths. Open our ears and unbind our hearts. So that your word may be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. This we pray. Amen. Who is my neighbor? For this lawyer, he was asking about the bare minimum he could do to be seen as righteous. Which of the 615 mitzvahs, laws of the Old Testament, do I have to follow? What social networks do I have to impress? What rules do I have to exemplify? What do I need to do to get into heaven? AKA, what do I need to do to get in the good graces of other people? When I'm walking in the broad branch market and I'm picking up that cup of coffee in my slim, new-looking outfit, what do I need to do to look good in front of their eyes? I'm a good person. How much time do I have to volunteer? How much money do I have to give? How much of me does it take to live a life that you're going to be happy with, God Almighty, that makes people ooh and ah as I purchase that coffee and say, wow, that's a person who has time to volunteer at nonprofits and to take care of their family, to build their wealth in Chevy Chase, and their kids don't scream when they take them to the shop for candy. Now, our omniscient narrator says that the lawyer's follow-up question was driven by a desire that he wants to be seen as a good person, his hope to be praised even by Jesus himself. Wouldn't that be nice to get a shout-out from the Lord Almighty after you ask him a couple questions? So the scripture says, in order to justify himself, he asks, who is my neighbor? Get ready for the checklist so you can check them all off, right? Yeah, I've helped that person out. Yeah, homeless. Yep, I got that nonprofit. Yep, I wrote a check to that nonprofit. Uh huh, we should be good. And that's not what he gets. Now, sidebar this is a church that has taken a pretty clear stance on who our neighbor is. As I would say in northern Alabama, all y'all. In our leadership, from this pulpit, from the top to the bottom, you are welcome in this church. No matter your country of origin, what you look like, who you love, who you are, who you hope to be, because all God's children are welcome here, full stop. Can I get an amen? Amen. But, but this question, this, this who is my neighbor question, hits us at different heartstrings depending on where we are in our spiritual journey. So let's see which heartstrings God is plucking in your body so as to create some cardio fitness, not some cardiac arrest. Now in Jesus' parable, the Jewish man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He is beat up, he is robbed, he is left to die. Now it's not like today's roads where if you're on 495 and you get beat up, someone will be there to get you in half a millisecond, because there are four million cars driving by at any moment. Now, this injury, and then the waiting, would not have been minutes, maybe hours, but more likely days. Waiting until the next person comes and sees him, and the story says that that next person is a priest. They're supposed to be one of the good guys, right? 
but the priest passes this man by. It's hard to know why. Maybe he didn't want to tarnish his reputation with the possibility that he touched someone who was ceremonially unclean. And you know, we don't want to break one of the laws on the Sabbath because then the Messiah won't come. And I'm a good priest. Remember, I want to be seen as a good priest when I walk into Brad Branch Market with my coffee. So he passes the Israelite by as he bleeds on the road. Maybe hours, maybe minutes, maybe days later, the Levite comes along. And this is the Chevy Chase class, the protector of the holy laws, the good progressives who work hard for the money, but they pass by because it could be a trap. It may not be safe to take care of this person. Maybe I should just write a check so someone else can come help this guy out. If I could tell you how many times folks in Chevy Chase or Northern Virginia or anyone who considers themselves a good progressive Protestant has told me that they don't go to certain places and certain neighborhoods because they don't feel like it's safe enough, I would have enough money to build fortresses with thousands of guards around these places in these neighborhoods because we can say that these people can be our neighbors but only if they're in our safe haven, in our neighborhood. I can't send my kids to that ward. Can you imagine the schools for their kids? We need some new havens. Amen, my Yale grads. But we especially need to keep walking down that road to Jericho and see who else we find. And who comes next but one of those Samaritans? Public enemy number one the brother of a Russian hacker, the sister of a general in Kim Jong-un's army, a Communist Party operative, an Al-Qaeda funder, someone like that is walking down the road at this Israelite, and he's the only one to help. Picks him up, tends to the wounds himself, even though he's got to break a whole slew of religious laws to do that, and possibly at the wrath of his religion's God upon him picks the Israelite up, brings him to the inn, pays for what he needs and whatever else he'll need, and then continues on his way. And we talked about heartstrings. The first one here, if this is a new story for you, you likely got to hear this good news, that in the kingdom of God, friends and enemies become friends. Reconciliation is possible for everybody, especially in those groups that our propaganda machines have convinced us are evil, the other side, the ones who are indistinguishably as a whole out to get us. As Paul suggests, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, not slave nor free, no man or woman, that we are all one in Christ, that we are all neighbors in Christ, that we're always helping each other out. That's who our neighbor is. Thanks be to God and amen. Amen? But that's the easy part. Yes, it's hard. It's easy cognitively to figure out who our neighbor is, and it's harder to put that into practice. But even harder than that is realizing this more difficult question. Asking ourselves, when I hear this story, why do I associate myself with the Good Samaritan? Why did I put myself in the good guy's shoes?
hear this poem by Steve Garnas Holmes. He says, people say you should be a good Samaritan. You can't. Samaritans were despised outsiders. Good or not, you have too much privilege to be a Samaritan. That's for the queers, the immigrant, the trans, the blacks, the homeless. You can be good, you can be generous to strangers, even to your enemy, but you are not the hero of this story. You can't be. You're the one in the ditch. Your neighbor is the other one. You call them rapists and they pick your fruit. You call them shiftless and dangerous and they build your economy. You abhor them and they bless you. Stop making it about you. Confess your dependence. Receive your neighbor's grace. Be humbly grateful. Let yourselves be neighbors. Listen to that stanza again. Stop making it about you. Confess your dependence. Receive your neighbor's grace. Be humbly grateful. Let yourselves be neighbors. When you reread and rethink about this story, especially the prologue to the, the parable, it makes a lot more sense and hits a lot harder, doesn't it? A Pharisee wants to be seen as a good man, a church-going man, a law and order man, a philanthropist, a generous man. He wants to know the requirements for serving others that still allow him to pursue his professional building and, and power building and resume building and capital producing pursuits. How much time away from making money do I have to take to be a good person? How much time do I have to take off work so I can feel moral, justice-loving? I can sleep well at night knowing that when I walk in the broad branch market, people are going to think, I'm a good man or woman. Jesus' parable makes it clear, yes, everyone is our neighbor. But in order to serve others first, we have to confront that hardest of all truths, that we are the ones who need help. We are the ones in the ditch. We have so many problems. We're addicted to our jobs, our resumes, our assets, our international vacations, our Netflix accounts. We're really creative at filling the holes in our souls and our self-worth. We laminate over them with streaming video, with cocktails and season tickets. We even do it in the bathroom. Bank my cell is a company that has a survey department. They sent out a survey to unearth the present state of smartphone usage in the toilet. <laughs> Combined with confessions to the extent to which we go to stay connected. And here are some of the stats. 80% of men admitted using the phone while on the toilet. 69% of men, or 69% of women, again, admitted. 
96% of Americans who are under the age of 23 won't go to the bathroom without their phone. One in 10 of us romantic American men, I've not done this to be clear, not one in 10 of us confessed using dating apps while on the throne. I'm grateful I came to age before this. That same number, one in 10, confess communicating with their boss. Communicating with their boss while working in the water closet. And all of this is very disturbing because according to the stats, our cell phones are 10 times dirtier than the toilet seat. Because only one in seven Americans clean their smartphones. We will do everything it takes to not have to listen to our own thoughts, to contemplate our mortality, to hear our bodies crying out, to discern the whisper of that soul of ours begging to be heard. So how do we check our pride? Stop with all the cover-overs actually listen to our innermost being, to build our body and soul up to a place of health so that we can recognize our own need and from that place be a healthy and good neighbor to others. The Montreat theme this week was let love lead. And our students and all of us realize very quickly that we need to let love lead us in service to others, to compassion to others, to do the right things, all the Sunday school lessons. But that harder lesson that we struggled with was struggling and learning how do we love ourselves and really know what we need. That's a much more difficult spiritual practice. One of our keynote speakers, Michelle Thomas Bush, who's the pastor of an incredibly successful youth ministry program at Myers Park Presbyterian in Charlotte, she shared the story of a girl named Erin. Now, Erin, just like us, used different strategies to glaze over her lack of self-esteem. Instead of confronting her soul's desire for connecting to God or learning how to love herself, she used boyfriends to cover over those wounds. Boy after boy would come into her life saying all the right things and then quickly fizzling out. Because without her own emotional health, she wasn't able to give and to receive in healthy ways. She wasn't able to set her boundaries and it caused her relationships to combust. But then Aaron, only a teenager, did something extremely vulnerable. She told her friends about her growing realization about herself. She told them that she thought that she might be using boys as a way to cover the dark side of her soul. And one of her friends, after listening to her at lunch, suggested, wouldn't it be funny if you had a wedding to yourself? And Erin kind of liked the idea. And she talked to her pastor, and this and that, and eventually Erin ended up having a wedding for herself in Charlotte. She had people stand up alongside her as she made vows to love herself, to acknowledge that she was a child of God, that the only thing that mattered about her was what God 
thought about her, not what a boy thought about her. Aaron made these vows. She got dressed up. They partied. They had a great time. And she remembered to whom she belonged. And in that belonging found her sense of peace. And then can you even imagine the kind of help that Aaron has been to her friends, to her family, and to her community? Brene Brown writes in Daring Greatly, because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world, our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. My friends, it took the Israelite walking down the road, getting beat and left for dead, so they would finally recognize their need from their neighbors. What's it going to take for you and me? Thanks be to God that God loves us just as we are. And from that deep acceptance of that love and that grace, thanks be to God that we can open our eyes and from that place of love, love our neighbors. May we always remember the words of that great saint, RuPaul. If you can't love yourself, you can't love nobody else. Thanks be to God, and amen.